0: BMI and TBI, when is it safe to exercise? Welcome to the 2019 Brain Injury Conference, Brain Injury Rehabilitation, the Health and Wellness Connection, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. Each year, an estimated 2.8 Americans sustain a traumatic brain injury and face a wide range of physical, functional, emotional, and social challenges. This course will focus on the importance of an individual's overall health, wellness and rehabilitation and recovery. Topics will include personal identity, cognition and memory, maintaining relationships and the capacity to return to fitness and other physical activities. In this lecture podcast, Dr. Irene Ward, Brain Injury Clinical Research Coordinator at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation presents, BMI in TBI, when is it safe to exercise? This presentation was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Bang Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Wednesday, May 15, 2019, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Chester Campus, Chester, New Jersey. Interested in more conference lecture podcasts? Click on the playlist link listed in the description of this podcast. Let's listen in.
1: Today's theme was about health promotion and wellness and we looked at it at a couple different aspects. I'm specifically going to look at physical activity and how that helps promote health um, and wellness and we'll get into exactly what that means. So the primary objectives is to talk about the importance of physical activity, um, list barriers to activity, and describe strategies for promoting physical activity. So just a little background, and I believe Dr. Jaycee had talked about this earlier this evening about how TBI is really not considered or it's really not being talked about as a single event anymore. And it's really considered more of a chronic disease because of the comorbidities that it seems to have that last or develop way past the injury date. So that's one of like sort of the hallmarks of a definition of like a chronic disease. So that requires like a lot of vigilance on the part of the healthcare providers as well as the family members and the patient to make sure that they're, consider- that they're constantly following up with their medical care. And that whatever is being looked at, um, what, whatever physician or um, care that they're receiving, it really should be looked at at the lens of this history of having a traumatic brain injury. So just some examples of these comorbidities are neuroendocrine um, disorders that can really trigger a lot of other types of um, health conditions, seizures, sleep issues, spasticity, cognitive behavioral mood, and the list can really go on. And I think the other thing that um, Dr. J.C. had mentioned is that this group of patients, individuals with traumatic brain injury, have a significantly shorter lifespan when they look at their peers who have not had traumatic brain injury. And I think that's really important to wonder why. So they're two times more likely to die compared to individuals in the general population of similar age, gender, and sex. So just kind of controlling for those elements. And that the risk factors for death after one year post-injury Um, are like older age, not employed at the time of injury, and greater disability at the time of discharge, which is kind of understandable. But the last statistic that I'd like to present that really kind of strikes me is the average life expectancy is seven years less for individuals who've had a traumatic brain injury. So then why? Well, this comes into the idea that we're not really sure why and I think that's we're actually starting to study that a little bit more in traumatic brain injury and but there have been a host of papers that looked at really defining that problem first which is is there a difference in mortality but sort of dovetailing this is the US Department of Health and Human Services put out a guideline on physical activity and the one here that I'm referencing in 2018 is something is actually an update to one that was published out in 2011 that really states that all Americans should engage in regular physical activity to improve their overall health and fitness to prevent the negative health outcomes and that the benefits of physical activity occur in generally healthy people of all ages so in, in people at risk of developing chronic diseases and that includes people with disabilities and i think this is the new addition to 2018 so that they're recognizing that people with, phys- with disabilities really need to be considered um, in this review of literature to make sure that they're also understanding the health benefits for physical activity and there's a cost associated um, that I think kind of motivates some of this, which is $117 billion in annual health care costs and about 10% of premature mortality just in our general um, population in the US are associated with ina- inadequate physical activity. So I just want to go over some terms because earlier today we heard a little bit about neuroplasticity and how that probably sounds like physical activity. But there is a difference in what I'm going to talk about versus neuroplastic activity to improve task and recovery. So physical activity is just more of a broader term. It's any bodily movement that requires energy expenditure. So that could include exercise, so that's sort of a subcategory, or some of those exercises that help shape tasks. Um, And it also includes just, um, in, in the literature that I'm gonna talk about here, it also includes what you do on a daily basis, like how many steps you're taking, how many METs you're exerting, all of that's considered physical activity. So it's not really specific to regaining function, it's about maintaining health and making sure that you can mitigate some of those negative things that can happen that can really affect mortality. So that we know that within anyone who works with the TBI population knows that there are challenges, right? So it's, it's difficult, maybe it's more difficult for them because of some of the cognitive, emotional, and physical aspects that they may be experiencing after the TBI to be more physically active. So just keeping that in mind as we go forward, but I still want to give you some of the the, um, the milestones as to like how do you know if you're physically active enough? And I find myself being a lot of self-reflection <laughs> during this, the preparation of this presentation, and probably wondering as you're sitting here, have you been um, have you hit these milestones? So this guideline says that about 150 minutes to 300 minutes a week of moderate intensity ac- exercise. So this can be looked at a few different ways. Moderate intensity means you're doing something like walking briskly. Um, it, but you can talk, and I think the guideline is that you can talk, but you can't sing. <laughs> so you have to be exerting enough energy to be walking quickly to be able to talk, but not sing. Um, and, and in terms of people who are in the cardiac sort of world, that's that's about three METs of activity. Um, and then for, but if you want to lower the amount of time that you're spending, but you'd have to increase the amount of um, intensity, and that's vigorous activity, and that really means, like I think about six METs of activity. That's like running. And if you're trying to like, understand if you've hit that level, that means you can't even talk while you're doing that exercise. So that's running, going upstairs with heavy loads, things like that. And there is a preference towards aerobic activity. So those were some of the examples I was giving you. So that's, that's the range. So again, bringing it back down to our uh, patients with TBI, like, is this possible? So the other thing is, so this, this guideline also discussed a lot of the health benefits, and you're probably already aware of them. Maybe some will be surprising. Um, specifically, they were able to get into some more of the specifics of cancer benefit that I'm going to list for you now, just so that when you're talking to your patients, not just about restoring their function but staying well, you can give them some of the examples how just generally in the health population, just generally in the population, with some of the benefits. So overall mortality, the risk of mortality goes down. So does the uh, risk for heart disease, thrombosis, and certain cancers. And the the ones that they listed here were specifically bladder, breast, colon, endometrium, esophagus, kidney, lung, and stomach. It also reduces the risk of non-insulin dependent um, diabetes mellitus and improves bone health, Um, improves overall physical function, quality of life, reduced anxiety and depression, which can be some of the consequences we also see after TBI improve sleep, which is also one of the comorbidities after TBI. We notice that sleep issues uh, occur. It also, uh, specifically for the older population, it lowers the risk of falls and fall-related injuries. And that really resonates with me because I think about the patients that we typically see. And um, when, you, when you look at the overall, and the CDC sort of like emphasized this too, that when they looked at their last s- swipe of like how many, what are the patient population, how are they doing in reducing risk, they saw that generally falls are on the, ri- on the rise for the, uh, for the elderly population. So those are the patients that we are probably getting. And when we look at our demographics within our hospital, we do see that they are a little bit older in that regard, and if we we had to guess, I think there was a lot of that fall-related risk. Um, So they're already coming in with that history of falls. We have to see if we can help improve that. One of the things that we've talked a lot about in in sort of our our rehab world, um, specifically we're looking to see if we can use our model systems database to kind of answer this question, but what is the state of obesity in the U.S., and how is that affecting our patient population and other issues um, moving forward? So we saw that 39.8% of the U.S. population is considered obese and the estimated annual medical cost associated with that was about $147 billion. So there's a need to kind of look at this, I think, um, and the estimated annual medical cost for people who are obese is higher at about $1,429. And just to give you some ideas, like I, this is sort of like, obesity is kind of used, but there are actual definitions. So when you're looking at a patient's chart, and if you're looking to see where they fall sort of within this rest, risk factor, BMI is typically used, which is basically the person's weight in kilograms divided by the, squ- uh, the square height in meters of that person. So usually that's risk. I noticed that when, it comes to, when patients come into the, our rehab hospital, we have that variable, that information on their chart, and it is entered as a variable within our model systems now as to like what is the BMI of patients. So BMI categories, there is an underweight category and that's also really important. I, I don't have any information to present with you, but they, did, they do talk about if somebody's underweight, that is also a challenge for health and also for recovery. Then there's the normal, weight, um, normal BMI, which is about 18.5 to less than 25. And then we start getting into the overweight and the obese category goes into 30 um, or greater uh, in terms of BMI and then it has further subcategories. Everything that I want to talk about in terms of obesity is in that 30 um, or greater. So then they looked at what are the health, ri- health risks for BMI and TBI, um, and so there were two studies, both by the same group, but they looked at them about a year apart. One was, and they both involved more on that acute stage, that really acute stage, the ICU stage. And it was a large study because it included about 1,153 people, so that kind of brought in enough to say that maybe less chance of what they're seeing. And they found that there was, a po- there was a positive effect in terms of people having a, um, been obese and more complications. And some of those um, complications included mortality, longer stays in the hospital and ICU, and two more days on mechanical ventilation. So those are, they're saying that there's probably a link there in terms of patients um, being obese and then also having some of these additional factors. So maybe they need more, uh, more of a watchful eye, more of a, more of a sense of, of watching them to make sure that, these, um, that they, they that they move along fine. And then in the ICU in 2000 for for another ICU study looked at specifically TBI and they had a large sample too at 690. And they found that patients who were considered obese also had more complications and higher mortality. But they couldn't really say that that was necessarily because of their obesity because that group happened to also be older and had lower blood pressure and chest injuries also on admission. So they think that those were sort of factors. So they couldn't really say that that was the, uh, the rate. So we're looking at following, them, following through that idea of like from the acute care hospital to now in a rehab setting, does obesity seem to impair recovery? So there was another study that came out and it involved 372 people. And this was a model system study that looked at, was there a difference in people who uh, came in with, uh, classified as, as obese versus those that didn't? And the answer is no. And they used the, the thing that they looked at was the FIM. Was there a difference in every version of the FIM? So they looked at the motor FIM score. There was no difference in the in the mean change in the of motor FIM, no change in uh, the FIM score at discharge, meaning they were about the same at discharge, and the FIM efficiency, which is really the rate of change over their length of stay, so, you know, they try to control for length of stay that way, and there was no change in that, I- no difference in that either. They did say though, though, if you just sort of look at the numbers, that the length of stay was a bit um, longer in the group that was considered obese, by four days, which is a lot of days in rehab, um, when you think about the average length of stay. So that was just one thing, but, um, but basically, basically they're saying that some of, the, some of the things that they were saying could be a factor on this is that rehab facilities admit patients uh, and it's not so much because they're ready and they can accept these patients. So they're saying it's staff training, special equipment, that the needs were met by the rehab facility that, that allowed these patients to continue to move forward. So then the other way we can look at weight is, well, does it make a difference? Um, how does the weight change in this population of patients so that we can be aware of that too? So that, again, kind of adds to that information. So in the ICU, there's a significant weight loss. So how many people here work in the acute care setting? Do you guys work in ICUs? Do you see that dramatic drop in your patients? And that's because they're in this hypermetabolic state, right? So we've often, when we admit them into the hospital here at Kessler, we'll sometimes hear family members say they they haven't always been this thin, right? And so the, the goal there is to keep the weight up. So they get, even with enteral nutrition, they, they, on average, they lose 8, 11 kilograms, which translates to about 24 pounds in their time in an ICU. While they come to rehab, though, they can gain, they, they, what they found in this study is that they regain the weight, about the same amount of weight that they had lost. So they start to come back to essentially normal weight. And the factors there is that, um, that we still sometimes, that rehab hospitals still continue with high energy and high protein diets to kind of get them back up to a certain weight. And also, maybe their their swallow uh, starts to come back to the point where families want to feed them. And uh, they'll feed them slowly and hopefully feed them very carefully, but there is that connection and so in addition to their regular calorie intake, they'll also get that piece of family sort of wanting to feed them too, because it's part of their recovery so what happens out in the community well out in the community they found that the groups kind of splits three ways 42 percent gained significantly gained weight 20 percent lost weight and uh, 30 percent remained stable we're about the same but the thing they said is that of those of that group there was an issue of about 16 percent developed in that short time developed uh, metabolic conditions like arterial hy- hyperte- um, hypertension, dyslipidemia, or type 2 diabetes. And the average age of these individuals was about 36, which was really not typically what you would see in this um, population. So some of the factors in this weight gain is that they were low to begin with, and then they came back. So that magnitude of change kind of put them into that weight gain category. There was also sometimes, um, so they were calling it as dis-executive dis- syndrome, so they were maybe less inhibited and would find food and probably eat the food. So they're saying there's part an element of education around that as well. So in general, though, they were saying that, that generally with physical activity, just sort of bringing it all back to, well, now we know that patients when they go into the hospital will automatically probably lose weight, and that may be troublesome because we need them to be at a certain weight to the, so that they can um, recover. Then they'll come into rehab and probably rebound and regain their weight, which is good. But we want to keep them on this trajectory of a healthy weight, and so physical activity will so- slow any reduce um, or slow any uh, weight gain. It also um, when combined with exercise, help lose weight and then hopefully prevent any re- weight uh, regain after a loss. So there's some benefits to that. Some other benefits, just going down the list of a physical activity specific to TBI, are lower le- it lowers the levels of depression. So we had seen that this is one of these comorbidities that may happen after a traumatic brain injury. So physical activity, some research has shown, actually improves that risk. General, Overall general um, health um, and mental health, Um, fewer reports of symptoms, so if they gave them a a symptom inventory, they'd have um, less symptoms to report. Higher self-efficacy and better quality of life were also shown with physical activity. So that's just a little bit more information to say, not only are there general health benefits, but specific to TBI, there are things that um, that can improve. But where does the U.S. in general, let's go back to the U.S. and say, how do we do in terms of hitting those numbers, those moderate to vigorous? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think we need a graph to do this. It's really hard to hit those numbers, especially with a busy lifestyle. But in the general US population, we're hovering at about 20, 15, 15 to 20% actually hitting um, that activity level. And where does TBI hit? Well, that's the, far, that's the box on the far right. This was a systematic review that looked at what is the physical activity level in patients with TBR or individuals with TBI. And all of those numbers really break down to nobody's really hitting nobody's hitting the mark either in TBI. Um, So this kind of gives us an idea of like, so patients come in, they're like, no, no, I was exercising, maybe that person, but generally in the population, we're gonna have to find ways to help get them more active. Again, with the idea of of reducing the risk for all those other health conditions. So only one of these studies, so this is the other interesting thing, is everyone relied on self-report. And so in in research, we know that self-report is not perfect. I think amongst ourselves, we know that self-report is not perfect. Sometimes we may overemphasize or not give ourselves enough credit. But one study started looking at activity monitors, and I'm going to spend a little bit later. I'm going to talk a little bit about activity monitors. So I just want to take a little bit of a, and I'm going to probably fast for, forward through a few of these st- um, of these slides just to get to the point because they are a build-up to it. But we did a, we did look at our model systems um, our model systems data just to get a sense of like well. Just sort of, I'm looking at things in the, through the lens of rehab, right? Mo- I'm thinking most of our patients, and my experience seems to inform me on this, but it seems to tell me that a lot of our patients come in pretty dependent on, our, on us, right? Physically moving them. And, and they leave still needing assistance. So who, how do we get them to be more physically active? Especially if we're, they're advising an aerobic threshold, which would presumably mean that there's some, uh, enough volitional movement for them to be able to do that. So we did, an, we did a study, we looked at what is the mobility, and so it was a study about mobility, but I wanna present exactly that mobility piece and show you who's at risk for maybe sort of backsliding. And we looked at 245 patients that came into uh, Kessler, um, and it was, a, it was mainly they were moderate in severity, just this happened to be the sample that they were mainly so moderate in severity, we had, um, but we did have some patients that were severe. It did, this sample did range from 16 to 92 years old, um, and we looked at, so you can see by color here that that first uh, pie chart shows all the blue. So this shows that everybody that came to Kessler in this sample was dependent in walking. And what we defined as dependent using the FIM was anybody that needed any level of assistance, even if it was uh, supervision, because it means that somebody had to be there to have them walk, right? Because we, we suspected, this study is really looking at participation, community engagement. So we want to know if, if they were, so this, that makes sense, right? People come in probably needing some help. By the time they were discharged, you start to see the green slice show up, so that shows you that about 39% were considered independent, which means either with a device or completely independent of a device, but didn't need anyone else to be walking with them when they were walking. And the third one shows a one-year follow-up. So I'm, I'm relieved to see that so many patients are now more in, are independent at 85%. So that means they, do, they don't need a device, they don't need, they don't need anybody, or they do, may need a device, but they don't need anybody there, and they can actually sort of walk. But this is by FIM terms, so we don't know exactly what they're doing in the community, but we know that they're considered independent ambulators to some degree. But there is still that small slice, that 15%. And what we looked at in that 15% was, in one year, why are they, why are they, what are they in need of? And what we found was really um, concerning because 52, about 53%, had a decline in walking in that one year, so that they were at one level when they le- were discharged, and in that year they declined. And, th- and that sort of makes me wonder a little bit about, again, that information of like what happens in that year, why does mortality increase, and is it somewhat li- related to their mobility? And then we looked at, well, how many people? There was a question we can ask, and we can pull from the database, was how many people left their home on a daily basis? Only. You know, and 94, almost 95% did not leave their home on a daily basis. So, again, they're very, like, very, there's only so much that you can do in your home, but if they are in your home, how do we help them be more active? So, there was another study I just want to mention because I was sort of like, well, well, what does that look like? For the people that are considered independent ambulators, what is their average steps? And does that kind of line up with a systematic review that we saw earlier? And the answer is, we had this other study that we're looking at, again, not really related to physical activity and um, wellness, but we had data to look at in terms of people that were considered, they were, th- to be enrolled in this study, and we, we were using, basically we're monitoring the effects of Botox on, lower limb in, um, in Botox on lower limb injections, just to see what their ambulation would be, what their um, in-clinic measures like gait speed, gait endurance, and then we had a Fitbit, we had them wear a Fitbit to see how many steps they were taking out in the community. And we saw that on average, they were only taking about 2,000 and 3,000 steps. And that was even with 88% compliance. So there is a need, we have to kind of find ways. And I think that, um, I think we're, uh, frankly, after reviewing all the literature, I think we're actually still very much in the beginning stages to understanding um, how to best intervene or what the problem is. So the psychological factors for people um, with TBI that show lower physical activity levels, um, so some of the psychological ones are exercise self-efficacy, uh, motivation in exercise, or depression. The other ones are, for physical, are mobility. Pain, fatigue, and functional limitations also reduce their likelihood of somebody being physically active. Um, other issues are uh, community um, participation, quality of life, uh, ADL independence and they weren't sure about um, injury severity. And And I can appreciate that because when you see them come in and they have a certain GCS score and they're considered classified at that moment as being severe, you don't really know how that's gonna translate in terms of some of their other functioning, even by the time that they leave your hospital, come to rehab and then afterwards. So that's why it's probably a little unclear. So other environmental barriers, and I think that this is probably where we can start to affect a little bit more of a change, is the lack of exercise facilities, no transportation, we happen to be actually doing a study right now involving the model systems to understand wh- how do patients get around? Do they use Uber? Do they use Lyft? That kind of thing. Um, and what's really stopping them from getting to where they need to go by transportation alone. Lack of social support, I think we can all relate to that. If you have a buddy <laughs> you could probably or somebody kind of hold you accountable to that, you'd probably be more active. Um, cost. So there are a lot of costs in life and I think this, another, adding another one could be an issue. And then just feeling comfortable and going to a fitness center and feeling like there's support there. So I'm recognizing the time, and so I'm just going to talk a little bit about activity monitors, because one of the things that Nancy had said um, is that all of the studies, many of the studies that they're doing, is not just those in clinic neuropsych exams that they're doing. They're really looking for things that are like ecologically valid, like things that are. What are the things? What are the things that they're doing out in the community that give us better information about how, in this case, active they are. So the Fitbit is one example of that. Um, But there are so many consumer available things. And they were saying about, this was a study that came out in 2017 that said, as of 2016, there were 414 consumer activity monitors out there. So I'm not going to review every one of them for you <laughs> as to what the pitfalls are, and I and I can't pretend to be that person to do that for you. But I can say that every one of them is imperfect. But I think for the patient, it gives them a barometer of how active they are. So imperfect for research, but also but pretty perfect for giving them a sense of how active they've been. Um, and the other thing I thought was interesting is that your patients coming into you, whether they're in the hospital or in the rehab center or outpatient, they're saying one out of 10 people wear an activated device already. So, again, this was published back in 2017, not too long ago, but they're expecting a growth of about 11% each year. So, more and more people, whether it's built into your phone, your watch, or something that you're wearing, that people are like wanting this data on them anyway. But there are, like I mentioned, there are some reliability issues um, that are really more concerning, in my opinion, for research, but for your own information, I think it's helpful. We've actually started piloting the use of them a little bit on our uh, rehab unit, just to see if we can help motivate patients or help clinicians understand how many steps patients are taking in their sessions. Um, and just to give you, this should be um, in your handout, but this will give you some um, ideas of what, how many steps does it take to be considered active, and we're talking about uh, 10,000 or more steps, and that's actually in the literature. So it's not just a default in Fitbit, but it's that 10,000 plus steps so if you're in acute care and you're running between patients, I'm sure you're hitting your steps just fine. Um, and then, let's see if I can go one more. So they're saying that beyond the number, the gross number of steps you take, because that is the overall activity you're doing, how about that intensity piece? So they, they did, somebody had done some work on this and found that if you take about 100 steps per minute and 30 minutes of activity a day, you should take about 3,000 steps. Uh, so that should be sort of a barometer you can use too. And that's above your regular physical activity level. Okay, so in summary, (laughs) so I I hope I gave you some information or at least confirmed some of the things that you can help bring back to your patients if you're looking to bring in some ideas of not just restoring their function, but keeping them healthy. And that's where the physical activity piece could be very helpful. Um, So I showed some of the information about how it's specifically helpful to TBI and that there may be ways like activity monitors to help people stay motivated and on target um, so that they can achieve those goals, especially for the people who are more mobile. That's it, thanks.
0: For more information about the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.